picture the scene. You're standing at the check-in of the airport. Your brother or sister is emigrating to the other side of the world. You know that you're not going to see them for months, possibly years. The moment comes to bid your loving farewell. What do you say? Picture the scene. You're standing at the halls of the university. Your son or daughter is leaving home for the first time. You've given the whole of the last 18 years of your life to raise them for this moment. The time comes to get in the car and head for home. What do you say? Words of farewell are important, aren't they? Perhaps you can remember some that have been said to you. Perhaps you can remember some that you have said to others. One thing I'm sure of is as that moment of departure drew near, we were thinking about them. We plan what we want to say in those moments, don't we? We rehearse them over and over in our minds. I love you. You are precious to me. I will always be thinking of you. Keep in touch, phone, text, email. I want to be part of your life. Work hard, make friends, enjoy yourself. Of course, when the moment actually comes, these well-rehearsed words of affection and advice often just dissolve into a tear-soaked embrace. We can't quite get them out like we hope to, but the hug and the kiss and the smile say all that needs to be said. When it comes to death, words of farewell are even more difficult. If you look up the history books, you get these great recorded sayings of what important figures said on their deathbeds. Apparently Winston Churchill said he was bored. Oscar Wilde supposedly made a joke about the wallpaper. I rarely believe these things. Most are fictitious, made up by fans and well-wishers. I've seen people die, and most don't say much at all. None of us know how we will feel in those final moments. And it's for this reason that Marie Curie have recently produced a pack of cards designed to get people talking about life and death. I guess they have in mind their clients who've just recently been given a terminal diagnosis, but they hope more of us will use them than that. On the cards, there are questions aimed at provoking discussion. What or who is your greatest love? What would you like to be remembered for or have on your headstone? Which of your body parts would you be willing to donate? What's the one place you'd really like to visit before you die? Marie Curie wants to encourage us to have meaningful conversations with our loved ones before it's too late. They want to help us express those things that are most important while we still have the chance. This, in essence, is what we have in this passage in John 13. Jesus knows that he's about to die. He must soon depart this world and the moment of farewell is fast approaching. In his final hours... While the precious opportunity remains, he begins to express those things of ultimate importance. 
There are four of them that I want to notice in these verses. And they're all wrapped up in his great love for us. And I've summarised them all with a letter, a word beginning with the letter G to help us remember them. The first subject that Jesus turns to is glory. This is verses 31 to 32. When Judas was gone, Jesus said, Now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will glorify the Son in himself, and will glorify him at once. We saw last time how Judas had just scurried out into the night to betray Jesus. Jesus therefore knows that his time has truly come. The great moment that his whole life has been headed for is now hurtling towards him. And what's his very first reflection on that dawning reality? Glory. This will be the moment of his greatest glory. It's inescapable, isn't it? Five times in just two verses, a word containing glory appears. As Jesus senses his vocation marching towards its conclusion, he knows its achievement will be great. Now, what does the word glory mean? Well, glory in this context is the radiance of God. It's the beauty and the power and the majesty of his character. The glory of God is so sacred and so pure that it's hidden for us. In order for us to catch a glimpse of it, it has to be revealed to us in some way. Jesus starts by saying that he's already been glorified and that Father God has been glorified in him. This is past tense. And what he is saying is that in his life so far, he has shown us human beings something of what God is like. In the power of his miracles, in the authority and the truth of his teaching, in the compassion of his treatment of the lost and the broken, in the washing of the disciples' feet just a few moments previous. God has been seen. Something of his glory has already been revealed. But Jesus knows that there is a greater glory still to be seen. A more complete revelation of God's radiant character still to come. This revelation isn't in a long distant future. It's not reserved for the end of time or an event solely in the heavens. This revelation is going to come in a matter of hours. Jesus' greatest glory will be seen at the cross and the resurrection and ascension that will follow it. In today's world, we lord plaudits on the rich and the powerful and the talented. We glorify royalty and celebrities and sports stars. But the greatest glory comes in the sacrifice and the service and the obedience of Christ. It comes in his horrific death on behalf of others. It's at the cross that we see who God really is and the true depth of his love for us. Notice how Jesus calls himself the Son of Man here. 
Now the Son of Man is glorified and God is glorified in him. This is Jesus directly quoting a prophecy in the Old Testament. In Daniel 7, the prophet sees a great vision of the future. God's people will suffer at the hands of the dark empires of this world. Empires that resist God and trample on his people. But Daniel then sees one like a son of man. A great representative for God's people. He also suffers greatly, but then he is raised up into the presence of God. And after his great trial, he is vindicated. He's given authority and glory and power. All the nations turn and bow in worship of him. He's given a kingdom that will last forever. In his great vision, Daniel saw Jesus. The Son of Man is Christ. He is the full glory of God in human form. He is the full glory of heaven come to earth. From the darkness and the pain of our world, he is the one who shows us glory and leads us into glory. This is Jesus. Holy is his name. After reflecting on glory, Jesus then turns very quickly to expressing his grief. This is verse 33. My children, I will only be with you a little longer. You will look for me, and just as I told the Jews, so I tell you now, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus knows that his time has come. His glorification is tied to his imminent death. Therefore, he must say farewell. And as it would be for all human beings in this moment, there is real grief. Notice the affection he expresses to his disciples. My children, my children, I will be with you only a little longer. A little like our opening illustrations. Jesus is overwhelmed at the thought of leaving his loved ones behind. He's been with his friends for three years now. They've been through so much together. And yet Jesus knows that his disciples still understand so little. And the real worry rushes through his mind. How are his loved ones going to cope when he's gone? How are they going to manage without him? And on experiencing this great grief, Jesus draws the 11 remaining disciples close to himself. And he starts to give them his final teaching. He speaks quickly, precisely, urgently, knowing that time is short. He tells them new things, things he presumably couldn't say while Judas was still present. Chapters 14 to 16 in John's Gospel are described by commentators as Jesus' farewell discourse. And over the next few weeks, we're going to read some of the most precious and intimate words in the whole of the New Testament. And the conversation that Jesus begins here is full of comfort and challenge and hope. It's full of that deep relationship that Jesus longs to have with all of his followers, with us. 
Over the next few weeks, we're going to hear Jesus make some truly great promises about eternal life and the work of the Holy Spirit who will come to help us until we get there. All of what we're going to read will speak of Jesus' great devotion to us. I hope already from just the verses we've begun with tonight, we can sense his love for us today. He loved us then as he contemplated the cross. He loves us now. He will love us forevermore. Jesus' heart literally grieves for us until we're with him face to face. So Jesus has reflected on glory. He's expressed his grief. Now he turns to issue guidance. These are verses 34 and 35. A new command I give you. Love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. As I just said, the next three chapters of John's Gospel are full of guidance given by Jesus to prepare his followers for his imminent departure. But without doubt, he begins with the headline. This is the number one guide for life. An instruction so important, Jesus makes it a command. A new command I give you. Love one another. Now, in some ways, this is not new at all. Right back in the Old Testament, God's people, the Israelites, were commanded to love others. This is Leviticus 19.18. Do not seek revenge or bear a grudge against anyone among your people, but love your neighbour as yourself. But in another sense, what Jesus says here is dramatically new. We're not just to love our neighbours. We're to love them with the same sort of love modelled by Jesus himself. A new command I give you, love one another as I have loved you. So you must love one another. We are to love in such a way that it follows his pattern and his shape and his example. What was the love of Jesus like? Well, it was incredibly beautiful, wasn't it? Jesus' love was not proud or self-seeking. It was a love that got down in the dirt and washed people's feet. Jesus' love was a love that crossed all boundaries of division and hurt. He even cared for Judas, washing his feet as well. Jesus' love was inherently practical as well as emotional. It was a love that was inclusive and universal. A love chosen and fought for against all the odds. This is how Jesus loved. This is how he still loves us today. And this is the love that he calls us to have for others. As he gives his farewell guidance, Jesus states that love like this is a powerful witness. It will show the world what God is like. When a non-Christian first steps foot inside a church, their first observation should be how deeply we love each other. 
Nothing so astonishes people in our fractured and broken world as radical, faithful, genuine love. In society today, you can go to places where people have a shared interest. You can grow to groups to find people just like you, be it sport or music or gardening or politics. But you will not find a community that truly loves each member, even though they're completely different to one another in age and background and race and gender. The church is to be unique. It is to be a circle of Jesus followers who sacrificially invest in each other purely because Christ has invested in them. It is to be a community that offers love, not so that we get it back ourselves or because the object of our love is beautiful. We love simply because Jesus loved us. I think we saw a little glimpse of that in our fellowship meal on Wednesday evening. It was really beautiful to see the church family together. I think we'll see it again as we gather with the McDonald family to mourn with them on Tuesday. A church that loves is a church that demonstrates God. My wife, for one, is someone who came to faith because she saw a family in the people of God that she did not have at home. Of course, the church has got this wrong at times. Right through the centuries, we have treated each other badly. We've turned the gospel into a weapon to bash each other with. Through the sectarianism of the past, we have defined the one another of this command as only those who agree with us or who bolster our sense of who we are. That cannot be right. The guidance of Jesus, this command says that we are to love all in the church, even those who've hurt us or disagree with us. Our witness to the world will improve such a lot if we do. Through his death and resurrection, Jesus began a new era. He made a new covenant through his blood, a new covenant with a new command. Forevermore, the defining mark of God's people is to be love. Love is to characterise us to the core. A love patterned on the cross. We're going to finish by looking at an example of that love in action. After the glory and the grief and the guidance, our passage finishes with a demonstration of the gospel. This is verses 36 to 38. Simon Peter asked Jesus, Lord, where are you going? Jesus replied, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. Peter asked, Lord, why can't I follow you now? I'll lay down my life for you. Then Jesus answered, will you really lay down your life for me? Very truly, I tell you, before the cock crows, you will disown me three times. Peter was so shaken by Jesus' announcement that he was about to depart. It's as if he stopped listening to everything else. Those beautiful words of verses 34 and 35 have seemingly just passed him by. He wants to go back to verse 33 and Jesus' statement that he was going to a place where the disciples couldn't go. And with his usual bustling confidence, Peter demands to know where it is that Jesus is going. 
When Jesus then reiterates that Peter will not be able to go there just yet, Peter stumbles into an ill-conceived protest. He will follow Jesus anywhere. He loved him so much, he would even lay down his life for him. Now, of course, Peter meant this. He really meant it. Every single word of it. But he had no idea of the difficulty that lay ahead. When you think about it, there are actually two reasons as to why Peter was currently unable to follow where Jesus was going. First, Jesus was about to go to the cross and lay down his life for the world. Peter would be unable to do that because when push came to shove, he'd be too scared, too weak, too frail. We know the story, don't we? Before the cock crowed that night, Peter denied knowing Jesus three times just to save his own skin. Peter couldn't follow where Jesus was going just yet. But one day he would. Once Peter had seen the cross and witnessed the resurrection, once he'd spoken with the risen Jesus and touched him and shared table with him, he would then have the strength that he needed. He'd have the proof of Jesus' identity. He'd have the assurance that he required. One day, Peter will lay down his life for Jesus. He will be a martyr for the gospel. Only not just yet. The second way that Peter is unable to follow Jesus just now is because beyond death, Jesus is going to the Father's house. He's headed for the presence of God, the heavenly courts, the royal throne room. Peter cannot go there either because Jesus has not died for him yet. Just like you and me, Peter was a sinner. He had sinned, he would sin again, even that very night in his threefold denial. Peter needed forgiveness to enter the Father's presence. And of course, in just a few short hours, as Jesus' blood ran into the earth at the foot of the cross, he would get it. Jesus said to Peter, where I am going, you cannot follow now, but you will follow later. In the circumstances, that is a promise of great hope. A promise of eternal life. I think you can sense a soft, gentle smile on the face of Jesus as he speaks to Peter here. Are you really going to lay down your life for me, Peter? I'm going to do it for you. We love bumbling Peter, don't we? Because he's so much like us. We love Jesus because he's so gentle and loving towards him. Peter will make mistakes. Evil will rock him. He will feel like a failure. But Jesus will never let go of him. Because deep down he sees his heart. What was it that Jesus said a few chapters ago? I am the good shepherd. My sheep listen to my voice. I know them and they follow me. I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. No one will snatch them out of my hand. And that's what we see here. This is the good news of the gospel. Jesus is going to the cross and it's his great love alone that will enable us to follow him on from there. It is Jesus alone that will lead us to glory. So there we will have it. 
Jesus' final words of farewell have begun. Precious words. Intimate words. Words that can change our lives. And if followed, will change the world. There is so much to be gained from the next few chapters. Do come back over the next few weeks. But for now, let us worship the glory of Jesus. Let us be humbled by his grief for us. Let us follow his guidance to love others. And let us hold on to the gospel with everything we've got. In all things, let us remember that we are loved by Jesus and try our best to love others in the same way.